So today, uh, Shabbat Chol HaMoed. What else can we say about Sukkot? Uh, uh, Tuesday night, we began with um, sort of a big overview of Sukkot, kind of covering all the bases of, uh, of Sukkot. Everything from what it says in the Torah to what it says in the Mishnah, <laughs> you know, uh, about, uh, about Sukkot. And I know that many of us were struck by the, uh, the uh, concept in the, uh, after the Babylonian captivity that Sukkot began to take on more of a, like this cosmic uh, uh, we might say eschatological uh, end time meaning where the, uh, the sukkah becomes a heavenly sukkah, the cloud of glory. And you know how we looked in Matthew about when Peter says, shall I make sukkot? You know, a very significant moment. Uh, and we looked at what uh, we read in the Gospel of John about the words of Yeshua. Uh, and then on... Uh, on um, uh, Thursday morning, we kind of zeroed in on that John 7 passage about being thirsty for God and what that means and what it meant, the background of the temple and the, you know, the going to the pool of Siloam and, and pouring water. And when you think about the backdrop of that, it makes it all the more, uh, all the more special. Well, today we're going to look at a few other things. We're going to uh, ultimately zero in uh, on another great passage in the Gospel of John that has to do with Sukkot, but not just to understand the passage, but to understand, in a way, the times in which we live and how Sukkot can make a difference in that. Sukkot is a festival. Sukkot, of course, is the plural of sukkah, right? Sukkah is the structure, right? The flimsy structure. Remember what I said? like a lean-to. Uh, that you know, and uh, in its very uh, earliest time, it represents people who would work like in the fields and didn't, weren't able to go all the way home, and so they would they would sleep in you know, like a lean-to, and was also used to keep you know to take a break from the sun and and all of that, uh, you know, and then um, uh, came to be a reminder of God's protection in the wilderness in a very precarious situation, God's protection in the wilderness. We talked about the paradox of Sukkot, right? Sukkot reminds us of God's presence, but yet in a very tenuous situation. It reminds us of our present uh, fragility, uh, but yet at the very same time, it reminds us that of the solid rock who dwells within us and in our presence. Uh, God, so there's Certainly the, the, the paradox there. We learned about um, uh, the agricultural meaning of, of, uh, of the holiday, right? Uh, and, uh, and of course, what we could call the end game of Sukkot. That is, we, reach the, we eventually do reach the promised land. Remember, we were saying that Sukkot is a reminder, and it's, it's such a paradox, which is so much of life in Yeshua. Uh, and that is... That yes, it reminds, oh, the blessing of, of you know, the nations being gathered in, the, na- the, the blessing of the agriculture, of the end harvest and all of that. Yet, we're called to be reminded of dwelling in the wilderness. You know, not of reaching the promised land, but yet of dwelling in the wilderness. Sukkot 
I, I, as we read about it in Leviticus 23, is about remember, remember the wilderness. So when we dwell in the sukkah, we eat in the sukkah, we sing in the sukkah, it reminds us of being in the wilderness, right? It doesn't remind us of being in the promised land. It reminds us of being in the wilderness, yet experiencing the presence of God nevertheless, right? But then at the very end, there's this transformation of the sukkah. The sukkah doesn't stay a flimsy structure, it actually becomes reconstituted. The sukkah, as we'll see in a great New Covenant passage, becomes a building. The sukkah isn't a flimsy structure in the wilderness. It really becomes the, the cloud of glory in, in where we dwell with God. And so there's a transformation, indeed, uh, that, uh, that takes place. Right. So, uh, But let's now reel ourselves in from all of that and ask ourselves, how can we rejoice, though, in the world in which we live? You know, the, another name for Sukkot uh, is called Zman Simchatenu, the season of our rejoicing, the season of, and, and heavy-duty rejoicing. We read that we read the word celebrate over and over again, rejoice, rejoice, celebrate, celebrate, rejoice, real emphasis on receiving the blessing of God. But in a way, we could feel maybe a little selfish or self-absorbed at Sukkot. Why should I rejoice when all I see around me is horror? You know, I mean, our, our minds and our hearts are filled with the great sadness of what happened out in Las Vegas. And what's so interesting about that is it seems that even though there was only a few thousand people in one place, boy, there's... Everybody seems to know somebody who's somehow indirectly or directly related. My son sent me, my son in the United States, uh, sent me a text saying that he has this buddy that went to that concert and he's on, the, he's on CNN because he was with somebody who sadly passed away but stayed with them and all of that. A guy from Columbus right here. That, that affects you for the rest of your life. You know, and then I have two friends. This is unbelievable. Two friends that actually knew people that died. Two different people, and one in Los Angeles, and uh, one uh, one in another place. And it's uh, hard to believe, you know. Uh, and perhaps you know uh, indirectly of people, and if not, you know you you're either on your Facebook or on TV. You know, so, you know, showing who everybody is and, you know, uh, uh, like in the, right in the middle of life. And it's just horrible to think about. You can't even think about it for too long without, it's too big. Like it's too much, you know. Uh, and, and then you have down there in Puerto Rico, hor terrible things taking place, you, you know, uh, where who knows how many people are really suffering and the kind of suffering um, that they undergo, are undergoing. Then you have, you know, other places, like take Haiti, for example, who never gets over anything, but just constantly uh, uh, suffers day in, day out, year in, year out. And then think about all the other places in South America and in Africa and in Asia and in Europe and the other places uh, that are not on a particular continent, but like huge giant islands in the world, like Australia, you know, <laughs> or other places where there's all kinds of suffering, how can we sit here 
and just say, praise the Lord, you know, uh, uh, as if it's not really happening. And you see, Sukkot speaks to that, right to our personal suffering in our heart, to the giant sufferings in, in the world. Sukkot is uh, so much about uh, reality. It's not ba- about pretending that all is well. It's not about uh, just speaking words of blessing and it makes it so, uh, or any other kind of denial that uh, people like to talk themselves into. Um, and that is why uh, we read Ecclesiastes uh, on Sukkot. We might say, what does, what does Ecclesiastes have to do with Sukkot? Oh, it has so much to do with it. One thing I think that is very helpful for us to remember uh, at the be- as we think about Ecclesiastes is that on Sukkot, when we dwell in the sukkah, it's not only about the fact that uh, life is a, a flimsy structure, and so there makes, makes us think about just the, uh, you know, our lives, our health, uh, or just the state of the world. But in another direction, the sukkah reminds us that we cannot wall ourselves off from the world around us. In other words, I, I, when we dwell in the sukkah, we can hear the sounds of what's going on outside. In fact, one side of it is completely open, and we're uh, not uh, uh, separated at all from what goes on around us. So it's not only the fact that the sukkah could fall down, you know, if we huff and we puff, but another great way of understanding the sukkah is that we cannot totally live in denial of the world around us, whether it's our own personal world or the greater, the greater world. And, and so, then, so then that again raises the question, how then do we rejoice if we cannot live in seclusion, if we cannot keep ourselves clean from the muck and mire of this world, how then can we be holy? Even? How can we rejoice? And so, again, we come to uh, Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes is a very interesting book. I think that the majority of people can't fig- wonder why it's even in the Bible. Why, uh, you know, uh, uh, we... we we can't make heads or tails of it. We worry about what was Solomon, did Solomon write it? What was Solomon thinking? What point of his life was it? Blah, 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 blah. But what, what, is the, uh, what is the takeaway from this, uh, this great book of the Bible? Well, uh, first let me say, uh, once again, a little uh, advertisement, that, uh, boy, when, we, uh, when you study the... Um, the um, wisdom literature of the Bible at MSI, we actually talk about it. So first, let me say that, that what the first thing about Ecclesiastes is this. There are three books in the Bible. That, first of all, I would say the, the entire Bible is wisdom, is wisdom literature, the whole Bible, okay? Not necessarily by genre, but certainly by content, okay? Wisdom and how, 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 how to live. Now, uh, what is biblical wisdom? Okay, biblical wisdom is not simply knowledge applied, right? Isn't that what we usually hear? Like, what is wisdom? Well, it's like 
Bible knowledge applied to our lives, right? That's, that's the answer that we usually hear. Now, that's, you know, I mean, that's true, but it's not the whole thing, okay? In essence, what wisdom is from the Bible is how to negotiate life as image bearers of God, okay? In other words, how do we negotiate life when sin runs rampant everywhere? To live according to the wisdom of God is to like live in the Garden of Eden. To live according to the wisdom of God is to live the way God made us. But there are so many issues in our lives and in this world that how do, you, how do we live the way God made us? You know, uh, conventional wisdom doesn't help. Hint, hint, book of Ecclesiastes. Okay, uh, and uh, you know, what we see and what we hear in our culture does, doesn't help. No, the wisdom comes from God. So now, in these three books, Proverbs, Job, and Ecclesiastes, I'm gonna, just those three books, okay? Proverbs is really, in a perfect world, this is how wisdom works. So wisdom in Proverbs is like, all things being equal, this is how, this is what's supposed to happen if I live a certain way. It's a proverbial statement, not a promise, not a law, Okay, uh, and we know that uh, we have to hold that in our heart and know how we should live, though, even though, let's face it, sometimes Proverbs doesn't come through for us. But that's one of those white elephant in the room things, right? That as a believer, I should never even have that kind of thought. But the fact is, life is such that if we raised our children the way that they're supposed to be raised, they do not always turn out. And sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes kids who grow up in the worst environment turn out great, right? Welcome to parenthood, hey, huh? You know? Uh, and, uh, and, and so, wow, Howard. How could, how could you say something like that? Well, that's why we have Job and Ecclesiastes. That's why they're there. Job functions to help us when our life physically, whether it be physically meaning our health or bad situations are going on in our lives, how do we negotiate that? How do we deal with that? Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, is more about when I think about the world, it doesn't add up. When I think about how bad things are in the world and I observe things in the world and the, and the systems of the world, you know, and the worldviews of the world, the philosophies that people espouse to in the world, wow, it all seems to all fall apart. None of it ultimately seems to work. So Ecclesiastes is about observing Life under the sun, and how life under the sun can be downright depressing. Under the sun in Ecclesiastes, one here's about Ecclesiastes. One thing we should never do with uh, under the sun is to pretend that it's under the S-O-N, okay? It's not what it's saying, and I hope that we don't like assume that kind of thing. It's not about living under Yeshua. It's about what happened. It's about looking at the world in, under conventional wisdom. That's why the writer of Ecclesiastes is, you know, is really down on wisdom because the wisdom of the world 
uh, doesn't seem to work. The, uh, the reality is, uh, is that uh, basically the message of Ecclesiastes is that we live, we work, uh, we die, uh, uh, and, uh, and probably within a particular uh, period of time in our lives, uh, like within a hundred years maybe, no one will remember us. What a way, uh, what a way uh, uh, to live, right? So certainly if you look at the beginning of Ecclesiastes, it says, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, you know, Solomon, vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, chevel, right? Like a, f- a fleeting moment, like, uh, uh, like a feather that just flies around, you know? Meaningless, meaningless. It doesn't mean vanity like vain, like you're vain, like you're thinking about yourself a lot, vain, like looking in the mirror all the time, vain, okay? Uh, it means meaningless, meaningless, okay? All is meaningless. What advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? The phrase under the sun is you, you read it over and over and over again in, uh, in Ecclesiastes, under the sun. And it, it represents life the way you see it in the world. Is life the way you see it in the world. Conventional wisdom, the wisdom of the world, uh, no matter how you dress it up, all of that. Okay, so, so we read here, what advantage does man have in all his work, which he does under the sun? A generation goes, a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises, the sun sets, and hastening to its place, there it rises again. In, uh, uh, in Ecclesiastes, we read a lot about dying uh, and, uh, uh, and the fact that we live and then we die uh, and we work and uh, uh, do whatever we do in between uh, uh, seems to be, for the writer of Ecclesiastes, we're just like on this treadmill. We're like on this, uh, I always think of the rat, the, the rat in the cage, you know, on the, uh, the little thing that he's running on all the time, right? Uh, 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 going nowhere, okay? And so that's what a lot of Ecclesiastes is about. Yet, yet, if you turn to a passage like uh, chapter 3, in verses 12 and a few verses after that, it says, I know that there is nothing better for them than to rejoice and to do good in one's lifetime. Moreover, that every man who eats and drinks sees good in all his labor, it is a, a gift of God. I know that everything God does will remain forever. There is nothing to add to it and nothing to take away from it, for God has so worked that man should fear him. Okay? So basically, that is a very good representative verse of a number of verses that in the midst of the hopelessness in this world under the sun, that we who know who God is should, one, recognize that every good thing that we have comes from God, and enjoy, enjoy what God has given us. You know, whether it might be, you know, our family, our, where we live. Uh, uh, you know, in the book of James, we read, 
uh, there uh, that uh, every good uh, every good gift uh, comes uh, from God. Everything good that we have is from God. That's in James 1.17, right? Uh, who never changes. You know, he who is the, the father of lights never changes. All good gifts come from God. And, and that is what the writer of Ecclesiastes uh, is, uh, is saying here. Now, he also, uh, if you turn to chapter 5, in verse 18, here is what I have seen to be good and fitting, to eat, to drink, and to enjoy oneself in all one's labor in which he toils under the sun during the few years of his life which God has given him, for this is his uh, reward. Further, as for every man to whom God has given riches and wealth, he has also empowered him to eat from them and to receive his reward and rejoice in his labor. This is a gift of God. Okay? For he will not often consider the years of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of his heart. Now, something you've got to remember, another thing about the writer of Ecclesiastes, he is dealing with life in this world. His subject matter is not about heaven or the hereafter or the world to come. It is completely about negotiating this life. How do we deal with this life? So another great lesson of Ecclesiastes is not only that in this life, you know, we, we enjoy what God has given us and, and appreciate the blessings of life, but also recognize that we are called to live in this world and not wait until we die. Not just, now I know the Lord, now I'm going to wait until I die. Uh, and like this is one big waste of time to just simply struggle through and hate everything, uh, but, then, but then it'll be good after. Okay? The writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us to embrace, embrace the world that we live in, recognize uh, the world for what it is, but find blessing in your life and focus on it and enjoy it. See, this is very different from a Victorian type of view of life, that the only way to be happy in the Lord is to whip ourselves uh, into happiness and joy, okay? Uh, and, and denial. Now, yes, of course, living a balanced life and having a balanced view is, of course, we are called to deny ourselves. I'm just saving that from someone asking me that after the thing, right? We are called to deny ourselves. We are called to bear the cross, die to self, and all of that. But we have to understand, yes, in our devotion to God, but that does not uh, mean that we are called to hate hate the gifts of God, or to deny the gifts of God uh, in, our, uh, in our life. You know, Sabbath is made for man. You know, uh, God desires that we enjoy uh, the blessings, but recognize that we should not look to this world for uh, any kind of real transformation. Because the fact is, I mean, it's a hard truth. We live, we die. And we do things in between. That is true. You know, on the surface, on the, under the sun, right? Uh, living in the sukkah, uh, 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 so to speak, right? But now we also read in, uh, in the eighth chapter of Ecclesiastes, in verses uh, 12 and 13. Although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, 
Still I know it will be well for those who fear God, who fear him openly. But it will not be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow because he does not fear God. Okay? Let me just read the next verse because it will be helpful. There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say that this too is futility. This world, he is saying, is a futile place. It doesn't lead us anywhere. But when we fear God and we acknowledge God, we recognize blessing in our life, and at the same time, it gives us meaning, accountability, a sense uh, that my life is going somewhere because we know that when the Bible says fear God, there's like a truckload of other truths that go along with that, right? Unfortunately, this is not a message on that whole other truckload of things. But fearing God is the beginning of wisdom. When we fear God, it gives us, if it's the beginning of wisdom, it tells us that if I fear God, I'm going to know a way to negotiate this life. I'm going to be able to negotiate this life. If we fear God, we'll know God. If we know God, there is a way to experience a supernatural peace and joy and comfort without denying what's going on in the world you know, and seeking uh, uh, to make a difference. Okay, So we might say, well, that all uh, sounds well and good, but I don't read that in the New Covenant. Well, then you're just not reading carefully enough. Okay? All right. First of all, in 1 John chapter 5, and you're familiar with, with this, I'm sure, in verses 4 and 5, a good example, for whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Let's stop right there. So when you read the world here, it doesn't mean the globe, okay? Uh, what it means is everything under the sun. It means what the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about. About living, working, toiling, dying. Boop. The world. It, the philosophies of the world fatalistic views of the world, legalistic views of the world, whatever the different views of the world may be. We overcome all of that in Messiah Yeshua, as the next verse says. Okay? And this is the one who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Yeshua is the Son of God. We don't overcome the world if we look around us and we just sink in the quicksand of it all. Or that we try to make the good news of Messiah fit into some kind of other system. Or if we think that we are the center of all the attention uh, of God, we will, we will surely be disappointed. If we think that it's all about me, uh, we will surely end up being disappointed and probably jaded in our understanding because that is indeed not exactly what the good news is. Yes, we get to participate in what God is doing in this world. And yes, the Ruach lives in us. And yes, we have an assurance of living with God forever. I, you know, no doubt. But I, uh, we live uh, in this world and much of 
what we do in this world is negotiate how to get through it. In 1 John 2.17, it says there, the world is passing away. The world is passing away. Well, if we put all of our eggs in the basket of this world, then we're, we're living on the Titanic and rearranging the chairs and enjoying the concert, if you know what I mean. You know? I, I, but that is not uh, all that there is. Now, Paul, the Apostle Paul, he says one of the, he has one of the greatest uh, passages that relates to Ecclesiastes that there is, and that is in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, beginning in verse 18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time, so there are sufferings in the present time, there are sufferings in the present time. And it should not be a surprise, and nobody is immune, okay? Are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So there he talks about, we live in this time of suffering, but there is a future, you know, there is a hope. But he goes on, he doesn't just leave it there. He says, for the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, vanity, meaninglessness. You got to wonder if he had Ecclesiastes in his mind when he's writing this, because he's in full agreement with Ecclesiastes. Okay? The creation was subjected to futility, not of its own will, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. Now, if he stopped there, we could say, oh, yes, but, but not us. We're victorious. We live victorious lives in the Lord. We do not... We uh, cannot uh, uh, entertain those sufferings. We cannot groan. We must have a lack of faith then. Oh, but wait, he adds another verse. But not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, and then notice he repeats it, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. When we dwell in that sukkah, it's sort of like emblematic of that suffering. It's like emblematic of that suffering. It reminds us that we have not arrived. It reminds us that we may have heartache and regret and disappointment. Remember, I, we already talked about Psalm 32. I won't go back there. I can only take so much, right? Yeah. Uh, and, 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 and so we need to, in a sense, embrace, embrace that. And recognize that. But we know that in Yeshua, we have overcome the world. We're in it, as we read in 1 John, but we're not of it. It doesn't only refer to not participating in the sin of the world. That's usually how that's, you know. But it also means that our worldview is such that we can groan in it and be honest about it, but we can also negotiate it, we can have an unspeakable joy within it, uh, and we can make a difference in it. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we read this. Paul, you know, the, 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 the sukkah 
It's like a metaphor for so many different things. So he says, for we know that if the earthly sukkah, which is our house, is torn down, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For indeed in this house we groan, he uses it again, we groan, longing to be clothed with our dwelling from heaven, that transformation, the resurrection body, all of that. And as much as we, having put it on, shall not be found naked. In other words, after we die, we're not disembodied spirits, is what he's, you know. We're not just floating around, sitting on clouds, playing harps for eternity, okay? Uh, I don't even know how to play the harp. Okay. Uh, For indeed, while we are in this tent, we groan, being burdened, because we do not want to be unclothed. It's amazing how often Paul talks about groaning in this life. It's amazing. But to be clothed in order that what is mortal should be swallowed up by life. Now, he who prepared us for this very purpose is God, who gave us the Spirit as a pledge. Therefore, always being of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith and not by sight, we are of good courage, I say, and prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be at home with the Lord. Therefore, also, we have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Messiah, that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, doesn't this just sound so much like Ecclesiastes? Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade people, men it says, but, you know, people, but we are made manifest to God, and I hope that we are made manifest to you as well. So we live, he's acknowledging we live in a world where we're falling apart, but we know that there's going to be a a, a different day, but we don't stick our heads in the sand. While we live here, whether we're in whatever condition we're in, we seek to be pleasing to God because we fear God. We know that he is alive. We know that the day is that we'll stand before God. And when we have that great truth, we know that we can have our eyes fixed on Yeshua, the author and finisher of our faith, and we can continue to walk forward, and our hope is in him, and he will manifest opportunities to experience blessing in this life and also to make a difference. Now, let me finish up by this making a difference part, okay? Now, we talked last time, uh, last time, one of the last times, anyway, uh, about the fact that when, when Yeshua talks about being thirsty, right, uh, uh, and giving us the water to drink, and the water is the spirit, that the water doesn't just slosh around inside of us. You know what I mean? It's not like drinking too much water, and, you know? Uh, no. He says that from your innermost being, living waters will flow out of you. Okay? So it's not just about, oh, look, he's talking about receiving the Holy Spirit and feeling good and, and, and well. No. He's saying that you'll receive the Ruach and out of you flow rivers of living water. Remember what we talked about? We talked about the fruit of the Spirit, and that becomes evident in our lives, and, and we have to desire that, you know, and from our will and all that. Well, very close to that, of course, it's still Sukkot, 
And Yeshua says something else, right? In John chapter 8, right? In John chapter, John chapter 7, 37 to 39 is where you read that great passage about being thirsty. But now in John chapter 8, he says this, okay? Now, they're, they're on their way to Jerusalem now, okay? They're on their way to Jerusalem, on their way, uh, uh, to, it says, at the beginning of chapter 8, but Yeshua went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again to the temple, and all the people were coming to him. He sat down, began to teach, right? So there they are, uh, and, uh, and he says uh, something uh, very dramatic. He says, again, therefore, Yeshua spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me should not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Okay, so you may be uh, uh, familiar uh, with this, and maybe you're not. But uh, there was another great tradition uh, at Sukkot, and I'm just going to read this, and I, because by reading it, it'll take less time. <laughs> so say, I just have here, uh, also during the days of the temple, another tradition emerged. According to the Mishnah, at the end of the first day of the feast, the worshipers would go to the section of the temple called the Court of the Women. Four golden candelabras were there with four golden bowls, and against them rested four ladders, and four youths of priestly descent each had a pitcher of oil. Each would go up one of the ladders and fill each bowl with the oil. The wicks would, would, uh, were made out of the worn-out clothing of the priests. All Jerusalem was aglow. So on the corner, no, there was no street lights, right? No electricity. It's all dark, pitch black. But at the corners of the temple, there would be bright light. So you could see it from, uh, from all over, right? This was a night of rejoicing. The very devout, pious people would dance all night with flaming torches in their hands. The Levites would play music all night long. The instruments were harps, lutes, cymbals, Trumpets, instruments of music without number. They stood upon the 15 steps which led down from the court of Israel to that of the women, according to the number of the 15 songs of the degrees in, this, in the book of Psalms. That's Psalm 120 to Psalm 134. Okay? They stood with there. They're playing their instruments. I, I won't take the time to read the rest of it. But the point of it is, here, uh, is the reason that they're rejoicing with the light is a desire, just like the pouring out of the water was a prayer for the, the coming of God again, the, the pouring out of the Spirit. So the lighting of the torches, right, was a picture of the Shekhinah, which had once filled the temple, and a longing for that day when the light of God would yet fill the temple again. And there Yeshua says, I am the light I am the light of the world. And so uh, in Yeshua is indeed this great light. And light in the scripture speaks of life. Light in the scripture speaks of understanding my calling, my purpose, who I am. Light, I understand. I understand how you created me. I understand who I am in you. Light, the Lord is my light and my salvation. The Lord is my light. He shows me how to live, right? Light, like showing me the light on a path and, and how to direct my, my life. Yeshua is the light of life. And what does he say to us in the fifth chapter 
of the Gospel of Matthew, he says, You are the lights of the world, in verse 14. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do men light a lamp and put it under the peck measure, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. How is it that we can rejoice in this world in the midst of horror? How is it that uh, we can do so? It's not by being in denial. It is by recognizing the truth of who God is in Messiah Yeshua. And by us being the light, we cannot help but be light and recognize the darkness around us and to pray against the darkness around us and to pray for people to have the light of life. Pray for people that they might develop a real thirst indeed for God. Uh, and it's so important for us to live in that light. We sang a song about, you know, standing, stand where I standing in the presence of God, right? Well, you know, it says in Romans chapter 5 that we stand in the grace of God. And that's where we need to live. And that's where we need to think. And that's where we need to dwell as we dwell in the sukkah, you know? It's about being re realistic about the world around us and realistic about the very presence of God in our lives. So, you know, years ago, I... Um, uh, I gave a series of messages on Ecclesiastes, and I likened each chapter to a song, because songs reflect everything under the sun. Songs reflect what's under the sun, okay? People love, men love women, and it's springtime, and we have those kinds of songs. You have songs of sadness, all about what's under the sun, okay? Even if they, even if they pretend to use godly lyrics, it's about what's under the sun, okay? So I picked out, uh, I'm not going to read all the lyrics, don't worry, uh, but three songs from th that series, okay? Well, actually two, because one was not written yet. In fact, the writer was probably about four years old at the time that I gave that series. But anyway, so, I, you know, one song I used was a song from the Beatles called <clears throat> Nowhere Man. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Nowhere man, please listen. You don't know what you're missing. Nowhere man, the world is at your command. He's as blind as he can be. Just sees what he wants to see. Nowhere, just see what he wants to see. I'll repeat that one more time. Just see what he wants to see. Nowhere man, can you see me at all? Nowhere, man, don't worry. Take your time. Don't hurry. Leave it all till somebody else lends you a hand. The second one is from the good old Rolling Stones. It's called Satisfaction, or really, I can't get no satisfaction. Okay? I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. When I'm driving my car and that man comes on the radio and he's telling me more and more about some useless information supposed to fire my imagination, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. When I'm watching my TV and that man comes on to tell me how white my shirts can be, but he can't be a man because he doesn't smoke the same cigarettes as me, 
I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. When I'm riding around the world and I'm doing this and I'm singing that and I'm trying to make some girl who tells me, baby, better come back later next week because you see I'm on, a, on, I'm on so losing streak, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try. Now, there's a thousand songs, maybe some are going through your minds, but there's a song that from none other than someone who wasn't even born at this time, and that would be Taylor Swift, who I hope someday enters into some nice relationship with somebody and can just stop already, you know? All right? All right. Okay? She's keeping lists with blank spaces on them, and she's remembering names. Oh, my gosh, the poor girl. Okay. Anyway, so she has a song called Look What You Just Made Me Do. It's on the radio right now. Just brand new song. And I'm just going to read one little part of the lyric from that. Okay? Because it's all, it all reeks of, of just um, desperation and sadness and no real answers. But anyway, one little part of the lyric there is, you ask me for a place to sleep, locked me out and threw a feast. The world moves on, another day, another drama, but not for me, not for me. All I think about is karma, the, you know, the placebo. And then the world moves on, but one thing's for sure, maybe I got mine, but you'll also get yours. But I got smarter, I got harder in the nick of time. I rose from the dead, I do it all the time. Yeah, it goes on. But it's like the world goes round and round and round. And all we can do to survive is get harder, get tougher, get smarter. And all that leads to is I don't trust nobody and nobody trusts me. I'll be the actress starring in your bad dreams. I don't trust nobody and nobody trusts me. How sad is that? And isn't it interesting with all these songs, you know, it's, it's like the anthems of life. You know, you know what I mean? And, and uh, hey, I remember that sound, you know, uh, Satisfaction, Nowhere Man. I had Rubber Soul. I had that album, you know. Hey, but what's going in us is just like desperation, no way out. And that's like the song, it's like the music of our lives. It's like, the, you know, the music going on as we're living. We have to break out of that. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is saying. Break out of it. That's why it's such a great book. You got to read the whole thing, though. See? He's saying, break out of it. Fear God. Trust Him. It's with Him whom we have to do. There is meaning to our lives. And so as we dwell in the sukkah, let us always remember that. Yes, it's a flimsy structure. Yes, it represents this world. Yes, it represents our lives. But God, the presence of God dwells with us in Messiah Yeshua. He quenches our thirst. He gives us light so we can shed light on this world and make a difference in it. What a great message on Sukkot, you know, uh, in our world. So may we rejoice in having the light, but may we recognize that we're not called to sit around and have a party, but to take that joy and make a difference in the world in which we live. Amen. Okay, so now it is time for us to take the Lulav and Etrog.
The lulav and etrog represents worship, worshiping God. It represents praying on behalf of the nations. And perhaps that's maybe what we might want to think about, uh, uh, given what we were just talking about, that, uh, you know, the rabbis, the ancient rabbis teach that because there's 70 offerings on Sukkot, it means interceding on behalf of the whole world. And certainly, we're called to be lights to the world. And so as we shake the lulav and etrog, yes, may we give thanks uh, to Yeshua, our light, uh, who doesn't leave us in the quicksand uh, you know, of this world. And so as we shake the lulav, may we remember our Messiah Yeshua, but may we remember him on behalf of the nations. And remember, we're talking about the, the fruit uh, of Israel, right? The palm branches, the myrtle, the willow, representing the blessing of God uh, in our hands. And may the blessing of God be in our heart. And may I encourage you that if you are here today and you uh, feel like there's no way out or that, you know, uh, this, this, this backdrop of depression in my life, Look to the light. God has indeed provided the water to drink and the light to see. And that is indeed in the Messiah of Israel, Yeshua. Amen.